Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. The introduction to this episode is easily the most difficult I've had yet. My guest today is Max Kamen Cross. Somehow, inconceivably, Max, who I believe was in his late 20s, died in the week and a half after I interviewed him. Max had already appeared on my podcast for episode number 544 in November of 2020. It may be too soon for those who cared for him to listen to that episode or to this one. It certainly has been emotional for me to edit and think about how to release this one. For those who are able to listen, I hope these two interviews will give a little window into how he thought. Max was a good human who was broadly liked and widely connected in the world of political and nonprofit technology. He put tremendous effort into his work and cared a great deal about the people around him. Max's last year had been very busy. As VP at NGP Van slash Every Action, he had worked on several acquisitions and also on the run-up to that company's sale to a new private equity firm. But Max had stepped down in the summer to take some time off. This fall, he really wanted to talk about 10 DLC, which is a change in phone regulations that would affect the use of texting in politics. He was typically quite passionate about this rather in-the-weeds topic, a regulatory development that I have to admit I was completely unaware of until he brought it to my attention. So on the 14th of October, Max and I had a nice, long, positive, gossipy lunch together outside a Greek restaurant called the Parthenon on Connecticut Avenue near my house in Washington, D.C. He seemed to be in touch with numerous people in the political and nonprofit technology space. The next week, on the 19th of October, we did the podcast interview remotely. Unlike almost every other guest, Max had emailed me a substantial outline of things that he wanted to talk about. In that outline, he even referenced time markers from our earlier interview. He wrote, Last time I was on, around 48 minutes and 20 seconds in, I mentioned that my 2024 fear is that startups are going to be too focused on pandemic-era tactics. I definitely take the chance to amend that fear to vendors slash campaigns not taking these new SMS and voice regulations seriously. And by the time they realize they're getting blocked, it's too late. This is absolutely going to happen in 2022. It's like watching a train crash. The next day, after he did the interview, on the 20th, he checked in with me again, asking how he had sounded and wondering if there were any parts that were worth re-recording. On the 21st, Max wrote me that he'd received negative comments from some of the texting vendors after his quotes in an article in the Daily Beast. He wanted to know if there was an area in the episode where he could better articulate that not all P2P text is spam, but all spam is P2P. Around this time, Max also introduced me to several of his friends at other companies who he thought would be great guests for my podcast. I interviewed one of them, Najid Kassam, 
at Kila on the 26th. A day or two later, Lou Levine, my first hire back in the early days of NGP software and still at NGP Van, let me know that Max had passed away. It hit us both hard and we struggled to process this news together and have been on the phone several times since talking about this loss. If I'd known what was going to happen, I'd surely have asked different and more profound questions. As it was, the interview covered things he cared about, his last months at every action, the 10 DLC issue, and a few other things. So here it is, for better or worse, my last interview with Max Kamen Cross. Max, welcome back. Thank you, Nathaniel. Uh, been looking forward to talking to you since you were here a little less than a year ago. Thought maybe we would just catch up a bit on whether or not anything happens in your world over that year. Yeah, a lot's happened over the 9, 10, 11 months since last time you and I, you and I chit-chatted. A couple big things. First off, to get it off the bat here, um, I am no longer Max from Every Action, and I am just Max, friend of Nathaniel's, here to chit-chat about cool things. So you've left NGP Van Every Action. Correct, yeah. Earlier this summer, I took a step back, and since you and I talked, I mean, it almost was a year ago to the day when Mobilize America was joining the Every Action family, in those following six, nine months, we had GiveGab, my community giving platform, and Salsa Labs also joined the Every Action family. That was a lot of work to get done, a lot of moving pieces. So I was burned out, to say the least. And I was really excited to have an opportunity to bring on um, some really fantastic staff members to replace me and to do my job about a thousand times better than I ever could as a one-man shop. So folks like Megan Applebaum from Hustle, Jude Mine from Planned Parenthood, Jacob Winowich from DNC, Alex Stanton from Blue State, and others, timing lined, lined up right, and I was able to get my very much needed summer off while having them take over some of my responsibilities. So those are some significant acquisitions. And then... It came to my attention also that NGP Van Every Action was reacquired from one private equity firm to another. That's the big one. That's the big one, I guess, right? That's the we did small ones and then and then we did a big one. Yeah. Did you have anything to do with that one? A very, very, very small part. You know, I think some, something like that that that's big is a huge team effort across the board. But that's really, really exciting for, for the space. And I think just like a huge validator to something that you know you and I talked about a year ago on how hard it is to show the public markets that being a values-driven company can also be a profit-driven company or can be a profitable company. And so I'm just personally incredibly proud of the work that our whole team did over many years there to really build a company where we were able to bring our balance sheet to bankers and say, here's a fast-growing, profitable SaaS company without the caveat of, and hey, by the way, it only does the Democratic Party and their progressive allies. And so I think that that should be taken as like a, a huge and positive thing on the left of the private market saying, 
well, you know, there might be something here in this whole social good world. There might be a lot of growth and a lot more innovation than you thought. I think that the news of that acquisition, which came out by press release, was received with shock and awe by the people in the space because of a valuation size that came along with it. Can you tell me how you feel about that conglomeration? You seem to think it's a good thing. Why so? I think, I think it's a great thing. I think it's almost unquestionably a great thing. Um, there are definitely negatives that you can pull out of any deal. I think that this is one that is just overwhelmingly positive for the space. It's actually really interesting looking back at the last time you and I chatted for, for the Great Battlefield, and I went on this little tangent at about the hour mark about how, you know, when we acquired Mobilize, we didn't talk about a public valuation because those valuations aren't meant for the clients or the company. They're really meant for shareholders in Wall Street. And this is one of those acquisitions where that's pretty important. Having the Wall Street people kind of notice it is a big deal, especially given that this is one of the largest social good acquisitions in the history of all M&A. It's kind of a, a different persona of who's looking at that press release. Now, there's probably some very fair critiques on ways that the company could have done it better with different press releases for clients versus versus Financial Times or whatever. But the reality is we built one of the largest and most successful social good organizations in the entire world. And the private markets valued that at a pretty big valuation. That's a huge proof to, to our thesis and our idea that you can build a product-driven, you can build an incentive-driven company without working with both sides of the aisle. When you say social good, what makes this particular enterprise social good as compared to others? So Apex Partners is taking every action and picking up um, a group called Social Solutions and Cyber Grants. I would classify that as social good because that's kind of the the general narrative category that all these companies are in. Because they're serving the Democrats in the political world in the U.S. and nonprofits in the nonprofit space together I think it's been an extremely short amount of time that we've had companies that are able to be profitable off of doing good work. So Cyber Grants um, helps do uh, CSR, corporate social responsibility programs for tons of companies, big and small, out there. And some of them aren't the most democratic companies in the world, and some, some of them are. But this idea that there is this whole growing sector really led by every action of saying our company goal is a double bottom line company and it's to have social good and to have social welfare equal to profits. Like this idea of, of a subsection of companies built around and serving the social good is, is a very, very, very new idea for this size of a company. When I've talked to a few people about it, They've said things like, how can something that is owned by private equity, how can you be assured that it stays in a socially good aspect? I mean, how can you be assured that something that's owned private stays in a socially good aspect? 
Well, I think it depends on what you think of the owners, but yeah. And so I think that like what's, again, like what's most exciting to me about being involved in this company for like two years and a long part of my life is that the idea that suddenly like a nation builder style, one day we'll pick up the books and Stu will be like, hey, let's go sell to the RNC isn't going to happen because it makes no financial sense. It's too embedded in the ecosystem that it grew up in. Yeah. And so either in, in my mind, and I know this, this, is, this is a little controversial, but in my mind, you can either say private equity is bad and going to destroy everything or every action is optimizing for profits. You can't really have both. You can't say that every action is going to only optimize for profits because that would mean serving Democrats more and not less because so much of the client base is ingrained in, in that part of the ecosystem. Thinking less broadly, but just about the progressive political tech ecosystem, which this company is now such an important part of, why do you think it's good for that space? Yeah, so I think it's good for a couple of reasons. I do have to push back a little bit on like, this company is part of the progressive political ecosystem. You're 100% right. But it's not only the progressive political ecosystem. It's also the nonprofit ecosystem. It's also that corporate responsibility ecosystem. It's also that black bottom market. The big public for uh, nonprofit tech company. Yeah, Black Bob, $4 billion, big nonprofit tech. It's many things. And I think over the past few years, again, I haven't been at the company in a couple months, but over the past few years, we've done a really good job of being able to show that we can manage multiple of these priorities at once. It really comes back to me of of being able to say and being able to show that like salesforce.org great idea didn't really work out for them they bought it back from themselves for 300 million dollars in a tax write-off there are so few companies that that have been able to go out and have a focus on nonprofits that make the world better and become profitable doing it that that's just huge so to sort of re-ask my question at least for this space which is a subset of of what every action ngp van does how do you think that helps in that political tech world i think it goes almost unchanged right for, for better or worse as much as i hate reading the twitter.com I'll, I'll go on there now and then and i'll see folks say like this is a crazy valuation but the reality is every action is a fantastic business and I think that lining it up side by side with like a first cycle in relational organizing app, which has been profitable for two quarters out of their six quarters of existence, is a really unfair comparison to make to this multi-decade old enterprise long-term company. There's pros and cons, but um, I, if I was a founder trying to pitch someone, I would feel much better now both saying, hey, look, like there are multiple buyers in this space that see the value in what we're doing as an impact-driven organization. And we feel more confident that we're going to be able to find an exit because of that. That's like a 
big stable force kind of leading the space, acquiring others in the space, competing with others in the space? Yeah, I think I think I think a rising tide brings up all boats here. This really, in my my personal opinion, like can't be overstated as as a big rising tide here of of having a fund like Apex, like a very well respected New York City based fund, say, you know, we think this company is worth a bunch of money. We want to invest a bunch into it. Like like that's a tide that really brings up the whole movement when it comes to good companies and good products with good long-term revenue streams. Obviously, I am not a disinterested observer in these developments, having kind of, in my way, got the ball rolling in 1997 on this enterprise as a one-man firm and trying to get some of the DNA right about what you're calling social good and about also having a company that people could be proud to work in and, and around and doing good work in the space. Just absolutely fascinating to see what people subsequent to me, mainly, you know, Stu and the whole team have done with it. How do you think this affected the people working within it, this acquisition? How did people do as a result of this new acquisition internally? And how, what's the morale like as a result? Yeah, so I had actually left um, shortly before the acquisition was announced publicly. So I don't think I have a good inside gossip track for you. But I do know that you've had some folks on on the Great Battlefield who, who may not agree with me on this on this point, and that's that's okay. Well, mostly when I've talked to people, they have been wowed by the business leadership that can take something to such heights is really astonishing, I think, even to the staff that have watched it. There's always, I think, something tricky about like how the spoils get distributed when there's an acquisition of the size and people hear large numbers and then think about how does that affect them personally. A lot of that has to do with just what arrangements people had in their personal employment with a company. Yeah, no, so I think you're, you're 100% right. I think that it's just like really, really important to emphasize here that like this is not a normal company, right? This is not your startup in a garage, wait five years, this thing happens. Like this is a extremely unique company with an extremely unique business model that's been extremely successful because of its leadership team and its business model, and most importantly, its client base. I think that when you start getting into people's personal post-acquisition feelings, and I know there's been some former staff members that have been on um, talking about things well, like only like, one, only one, and and maybe I, you know I may have erred in having him on to some degree because he wasn't representative. I'm happy to answer the question because because I do have a very strong feeling on this, having been at companies from. I don't know, five, six people all the way up to 500 now. One of the questions coming out of this is like, who gets stock or something like that? And um, I think it's it's really important to have an equitable and fair employment contract. And depending on the size of the company, depending on that company's goals, depending on a lot of factors, sometimes that involves stock and sometimes that doesn't. I mean, you yourself have been through multiple acquisitions, right? With some of the companies we discussed when you were on the show last time, some of them I know 
you didn't get much out of the exit, as it were. And other cases, I hope in this case, you did a little bit better. It's got to affect your feelings about how how it all transpired. Yes and no. I think I think it's a cost benefit. Um, I think that it's also important to kind of think about like from the executive side, giving stock at Hustle when we were 15 people was very easy. Like that was easy to do. It was made up on paper. That was very easy to do. Giving stock at Microsoft when you are a bazillion people, that's very easy to do. You're publicly traded. Giving stock in the middle is, is a much harder task to do for a lot of reasons, a lot of which you know. I've had people come to me and and point out that I didn't make stock available in the early days and that had consequences for them now. I didn't even think about the idea that this company was even going to make it, much less um, have stock that was valuable broadly. No one knows. And there's one company in particular that I'm not going to name, actually, for everyone's case. But you and I were talking over the weekend. uh, We had lunch. And you were surprised to know how, how little I made from that company's exit. And I think it's just a personal cost benefit risk analysis whatever of i often don't put that much faith in a company's long-term stock a lot of times people have a choice of stock or compensation and quite reasonably especially people experienced in the startup world will be like i don't want the stock i know what's going to happen here yeah no i think you're exactly especially at a company of that mid hundreds person's growth when you look at a company like Palantir out in Virginia that was private for like a decade plus, they couldn't sell their stock. It's golden handcuffs almost. There's pros and cons to everything. The important part is making sure that you're fairly compensated for that work that you're doing in whatever way that looks like. But I'm extremely pleased to see kind of uh, the mission close the loop here or begin the next loop. How about for clients? Every now and then I would hear, here's another acquisition of Blue State Digital, of Mobilize, of GibGab, of Salsa. How do you think the clients of NGP, of Van, then this whole sequence of other enterprises that have been brought together into this family, how do you think they're served by this upward trajectory of the company? I think they're served well. I think that they're sort of well in comparison to where they were. I also think more importantly, they're sort of well in comparison to where they would have been if we or if every action was not the acquirer. When we look at a space like this, companies like BlackBot have had such a lock hold over the M&A space for so long that... I think that every action is able to bring something new to the table. I think it's something that a lot of, a lot of these companies find attractive saying, um, again, I, I won't name names of, of companies, but like, you know, we took VC money a decade ago. Our VCs want to return now. We don't want to go work for BlackBot. We don't want to go work for like a nation builder. We want to work for a company that, that shares our values hey, every action, you're a really good fit. Mobilize was a similar example there. I think it works on, on all ends. I know you've paid attention to the startup tech ecosystem, which uh, competes and cooperates with every action and NGP Van. Um, 
often integrating with it, sometimes tackling one of the different aspects of the product or maybe sometimes sitting outside of it. How do you think that group of enterprises is affected by the continuing uh, conglomeration? Yeah, so so I think that they should feel more secure than ever. Again, this is my personal opinion. I haven't been at the company for a few months. I've had a beautiful summer off. Um, but no, I, I think that companies that are, that are tangential to to what the core product does should feel like they're in a good place because as you and I have spoken about in the past, like over the years, at least I felt every action has done a really good job of knowing what it does well and knowing what it doesn't do well. And so understanding what that core CRM product is versus what that add-on company is. Even when we look at something like Mobilize, which is one of my favorite examples, because we really went full circle with them from me being one of the first staff members there to then leading the acquisition at every action to bring Mobilize into the family, like Mobilize grew heavily due to to Van's distribution system. They said, hey, we have a Van integration. You're a state party. You're a campaign. Spin up. Get ready, ready to go. Two seconds. Bing, bang, boom. You've got a demo site live. And that distribution network, I, I think, was key to their growth and key to a lot of other companies' growth. I do think it's a good thing for companies like that. And at minimum, I think that you can entertain the idea that it's like a net neutral. I think that saying, you know, this is it, this is the end, this is the apocalypse of of, of M&A in the political space is not the correct take. Well, also, there, there seem to be multiple other firms that are making acquisitions and are trying to build suites, I have to assume, to compete in different ways, Helm and PDI and others, Jeremy Smith's company, that's probably answers the question of whether competition is over, right? Oh, yeah. I think that there is zero doubt in my mind. If anything, I would say that competition should be reinforced because someone like Jeremy Smith from Civitech, who you mentioned, who I have a lot of respect for and think they're doing a lot of really cool things, is now, I'm not saying he hasn't, I haven't talked to him about this. He's a smart guy, he's probably gotten around this, but like he can go to an institutional investor that knows very little about this political space and say, hey, look, here's an example of a social impact company making a serious exit and we wanna do the same thing. And here's a data point that we didn't have before that shows you on paper that this is possible. I know you've left, but you did help with the acquisitions for a while. Would it be your guess that every action will continue to acquire? And if so, what sorts of enterprises would be in their sites? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know, really. Part of which being on purpose of like, you know, I didn't didn't want to know as I was leaving. Wanted to make sure that I was leaving a, a very positive and very clean slate with everyone and super, super grateful for my colleagues. <laughs> for accommodating my, uh, we'll say, epic case of burnout there towards the end. But I think that it's in a great position for the company to do a lot of different options. And I think that it's also in a really great position 
with things like cyber grants and social solutions to do things like integrations of grant management, to do things of more of that full service product for that corporate CSR user. I don't know if that's where their goals are going to be. I don't know if that's where their roadmap is going, but I think that they've got a lot of work in front of them. Um, just like with any M&A, let, let alone one of the size, there's a long way to go here. So I'm sure that they have to digest for a while a lot of what has been eaten. As it's a chunky one. This is a big one. And, and but again, like I think that it's it's just incredibly exciting to see firms like Insight and like Apex, like two very smart, very savvy investors saying. We believe in the mission and we also believe in the revenue. And we believe that these companies have a good business model for long-term enterprise revenue. Do you think people will be grumpy with you for talking about this after having left? I don't think anyone will be grumpy at me for talking about this. Okay, good. I don't think so. Good. Uh, I don't see why they would need I think what, what, what we might talk about next, we might have some grumps here, but that's okay. There's a couple things I do want to talk to you about next. I was not aware until we chatted about it was new rules coming to texting. You said something like 10 DLC. Can you explain to the uninitiated? I mean, I know you were an early employee at Hustle. So you were there at some of the birth of this political texting revolution. But tell me what you know about that and what's going on and why is it important? Yeah, totally. The meat of why we're here to talk about is what's going on with 10 DLC. It's been a thing that we've been hearing about on the left for 14, 15, 16 months now. If you want to go back far enough, we've been hearing about it since 2017. Um, and it's basically the idea that carriers are saying, we don't know what's going on on our network. AT&T last year saw a 35% increase in SMS traffic on their network while seeing historic lows of person-to-person, like Nathaniel to Max messaging. Nathaniel, you and I use email or signal or things like that to message, not SMS. But we're seeing carriers see this huge increase in SMS to the point where it's problematic for their system and has taken carriers down. And a lot of this has been driven by this rise of peer-to-peer SMS and the, the lower cost. And 10 DLC is one of the proposed mechanisms to try and get, get a better handle on this. So where is that coming from? Is that coming from the U.S. government? Indirectly, yes. I'll spare you with the, with, with the wild details here. But back in 2018, the FCC said that SMS is a Title I communication while voice is a Title II. The big difference is that voice is much closer to your power company, where it says you need to deliver traffic as you get it, where it's going, on time, et cetera, et cetera. While an information service, a Title I, has much less regulation around it. At the same time, the FCC says, hey, you guys have a spam problem. We're getting a lot of spam complaints over here. What do you plan to do about that? And so it's a mix of both of, of deregulation. And, and, and I would argue that this is inappropriate deregulation, that this triopoly that the FTC has made has put us in a really rough spot for deregulation. 
Um, but yes, this is the carrier saying, you know, we need to do a better job with spam prevention. We don't know what's going on in our network right now. 10DLC at its core is a tagging system that says, who is this text coming from? Where is it going? What's the purpose of the use case? Along with a built-in approval process that says, you know, if your use case is Nathaniel's pills are us and you sell fake Viagra, you're not going to be approved because that's not a good use case for SMS. So, okay, you're using the word spam in this case, applying to text. Are you referring, therefore, to a text sent to someone who hasn't opted in to receive text from a particular texter? What do you mean? So, I yeah, and, and I hate using the word spam. I, I usually talk of this as spam, scams, and malware. On Android phones, we see a lot of malware. We see a lot of scams that are like car warranties, things like that. And then we see spam, which is, to your point, what is the definition of spam? Well, it, it's, it's unwanted messages. And sometimes those messages are unwanted until you get them and you say, hey, I'm so glad that the Biden campaign reached out to me. And sometimes those, those messages aren't and they remain unwanted. And it's really annoying to consumers. It's one of the fastest growing FTC complaints of the entire FTC is, is political texting. And I think it's a really important differentiation here between things like email and even voice where like in email, political can be challenging, no doubt, but we are a small portion of the problem when you talk about Nigerian princes, overseas Viagra sales, you know, that type of email spam. When we talk about political voice and SMS, we are one of the things that the consumer interacts with the most and has at times a negative experience with. And so, you know, it makes sense that that folks like the FTC and like the FCC and like the carriers would be stepping in and saying, hey, you guys need to solve this under this public-private partnership that we established in 2018 under Title I. I mean, I've seen uh, a number of political organizations who have campaigns that are organized around reaching out rather broadly, whether it's for voter registration or for trying to find donations or get out the vote efforts or things like that over text. And I'm pretty sure a fair number of them are not finding ways to get people opted into that. They're just kind of broadly matching a voter file, say, to phone numbers and sending messages out. Doesn't hustle and its ilk help with that. People in the political space got very excited about it on our side because it worked better because people were, you know, having a rare political message, were responding in much higher percentages to it and doing things that were, they were asked to do. How do you think about that? I got very excited about yeah. it, right? Like I got, I was one of the first employees that worked on this ever. And it is so exciting just to see those numbers go up because it was a new thing. It was a new idea. It was the first time this experience had occurred. 
And so the idea of getting a cold text and having a non-robot on the other side was just such a cool experience. Now, and this goes back to like maybe what we should have built at Hustle and, 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 and whatever, but the past is the past. Now, when you look at the state like Virginia, where you have house races, you have governor races, you have PACs, you have all of these things working off of a voter file with the similar or the exact same data. And maybe Nathaniel, your um, maybe your, your name in the Virginia voter file is, is Max. And so not only are you getting one text about Max, you're getting five a day. That's moved from a nuisance to, to, to truly annoying and truly interrupting your day. And I think that there's a lot that can be done to change that relationship. But a lot of that has to come from the organizations driving these messages and seeing the value in best practices. There are a lot of things wrong with 10DLC. It's a opaque system. You know, we've been talking about it for three, four years now. It's been delay after delay after delay as they've been trying to roll out this technical infrastructure built by a team overseas in, in India. Confusion leads or opacity leads to confusion. Um, and so I think what a lot of people are looking for is just like, hey, t- tell us what's going on and what we need to do to comply. The The kicker here, though, is that since the beginning, a core part of 10 DLC, since going back to the first document I ever saw in this in like August of 2020, said 10 DLC senders are going to have to abide by CTIA, the trade association's best practices guidelines. And those guidelines say don't text people that don't want to be texted. If I were running a company helping people do peer-to-peer texting, I would want to stay ahead of this. How are we doing on the progressive side in preparing for this change? How's the other side doing? Do you have a sense if there's a differential? This is where my opinion gets a little controversial here. But yeah, this is not new. AT&T has been talking about 10 DLC in a lot of different ways since 2017 or 2018. T-Mobile is not about the same. The first time I ever got like hard guide principles was August of 2020. The first press story about this was September of 2020. Like this is not a new thing. And for 13, 14 months, we've seen Democrats mount, I, I mean, what can only be called a very impressive lobbying campaign, two people on the Hill, two regulators, two carriers saying, hey, don't do this. I think I saw that it was 11 senators got it delayed by AT&T till after the election, any implementation of changes. Yeah, I think it was 13 in the, that Daily Beast article they said. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the technical infrastructure here is still very, very janky and years behind schedule. But the reality is we're talking to consumers who don't want to be talked to. And how do we solve that problem? Are the two parties or their vendors solving it differently? Yes, I think so. On the right, we saw people who I have a lot of respect for 
um, folks like Thomas Peters at UCampaign RumbleUp, um, a P2P platform on the right. They began working on a tool that they called Switchboard in 2020 and launched in May of 2021. There's a very similar tool like that that's kind of a little bit more left-leaning called Community that folks like Stacey Abrams and Barack Obama are using, where if you open up like Obama's Instagram on your phone and click text me, you can begin a text conversation with Barack Obama. It's a user-initiated opt-in, which is kind of the best of both worlds because that opt-in can come whether it's from an online forum, whether it's from a text being sent in. There's a whole variety of ways that that opt-in can come but it is a double opt-in and saying, I want to join this community and I want to have basically what ends up being like the best of broadcast and the best of P2P in one. And hey, by the way, this type of text messaging is sanctioned by the carriers because it's a double opt-in. And I think that the left is, is really, really, really behind here. I think that we've been on a hope and a prayer for nine plus months here of like, are they going to delay or not? And even when they don't delay, it's going to be a slow rollout. There's no big switch in the corner that says 10 DLC on off. Um, It's going to be a slow rollout. And it's really, 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 really scary to me to to see the, the fragmentation in the ecosystem and the lack of clarity between vendors on what they're seeing and how they're planning to handle it. So what do you think the hustles and the get-throughs and the and the companies that deliver our peer-to-peer text ought to do if you could uh, have their ear? I honestly don't know. I'm really, really, really worried that come the end of 22, come the end of 2024, when these things are actually being enforced, we're going to wake up one day and our SMS infrastructure is going to slowly stop working. I don't know. I, I mean, I think that like the the idea of an opt-in has changed a lot over the past six months or a year, both legally, compliance, all of these things has changed. And so I think that we're going to start seeing more and more of this idea of a soft opt-in. Like Nathaniel gave his number on a union card that didn't necessarily have a TCPA compliant opt-in, but it's implied consent. I do think that, that a lot of these rules for the foreseeable future are going to be driven by complaints. And so if you're sending good messages to volunteers that like whether you have a legally binding opt-in or not, they want to get your messages. And those aren't the people that AT&T is concerned about. What they're concerned about is the 300% increase in spam complaints that they've been getting. Got it. A side question. Um, why do a lot of my political text messages seem to be only half of the message? They seem to cut off in the middle. Do you have any idea? I do. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a complicated question. So text messages is thought of a 160-character segment. It's actually 160-plus an infinite number of 153 character segments. Um, and those extra seven characters are used to encode the messages together. Some providers, some cell networks, some carriers, some handsets don't do as good of a job of stringing those together as others. So they kind of lost the other packets or something? 
basically, yeah, that is a really hard thing to diagnose when we're on the left and we have so many SMS vendors. I am all for competition. I'm all for more SMS vendors. But when you have 30, 40, 50 of them out there, it's much harder to track one down and say, hey, let's fix this. Max, I've a couple times replied to that half message and said, hey, I'm only getting half your message. Do they get that response? Because I've never had a reply to my reply. Are you on Sprint? No, I'm on Verizon on an Android. Interesting. Um, they should get that reply, yeah. Those types of bugs get harder. And then this is this is part of being on the left versus the right, where we have a lot more companies, especially those venture-backed, that are seeing SMS as a high-margin add-on product that every campaign needs. And so it's kind of like throw it in with the kitchen shed. Let's do SMS too. I've said for years, like sending a text message is easy. Everything else is what's really, really hard about it. And I think that's only becoming more and more true where similar to email, like reputation is important. All of these things are more and more important. So having this many vendors out there that aren't coordinating and that aren't sharing best practices um, it is hard on the left, especially compared to the right, where there really are only two or three or maybe four SMS providers. What do you think the future is for SMS in politics? It's hard to say. Am I optimistic here or am I pessimistic? Uh, you tell me. So I think that my optimistic view is that there are a lot of really incredible tools out there that are doing things like um, like first-party opt-ins, things like community.com, where you go to Barack Obama's Facebook page, you text him, you join his community. Um, it's kind of that in-between of a broadcast and a peer-to-peer -peer where he can text everyone at once. It's a static number. It puts his face in your phone, whatever. And then his staff can also respond one at a time to you. That's a really, really, really cool concept. Full disclosure, not being paid by a community, not being paid by anyone. Just think this is a really cool take on, on a product. That's one way to go. I think another way to go is that we just keep slamming slamming the P2P channel for, for a long time. And I personally don't think that's going to last very long. Others have different opinions about how long it's going to last. And I think that if we're doing good messages, if AT&T is seeing that 35% increase on its network volume, but not the 300% increase on its spam complaints, they might be a little bit more lenient here, but they're seeing both. It seems like one, another one of these things where any one campaign doesn't bear the consequences of its spamming. The incentive is for them to keep doing it if it helps them kind of individually. It's the tragedy of the commons to, to the extreme. Unfortunately, us here as Democrats, we're not always good at that. What else would you like to say about SMS and politics? I mean, it's, it, it's a super interesting one. It's a really, really controversial, really interesting topic. One of the reasons why um, I, I was excited to be able to talk to you about this today is I think that we have a lot of these groups that are on both sides saying all texts are bad and all texts are spammy. And we have other groups saying, 
no texts are spammy. And my opinion, you know, having no skin in this game, having been out of the SMS space, but closely following it for many years now, is that it's a little bit of a both. It's There are some really, really valid, really incredible use cases for non-opted in peer-to-peer, but at the same time, there are some use cases that are unwanted messages. How do you balance that? And how do you balance that not from just like a policy perspective, but a legal one? I think 10 DLC has come and gone. I think it's going to happen. I think that this is like, in my personal opinion, too late to be fighting this. Like the time to fight this was 2018 during the net neutrality repeal or 2020 when these plans first came out or whatever. It's not with weeks to go. And I think that that's, that that's a hard thing because vendors, campaigns, no one's incentivized to say, oh, 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 darn, we got to get up on our game here. It's hard to see that there's a lot of political support for uh, text spam. No, and, and and that's one of the things that, I mean, personally, um, again, I know that there are some vendors that I'm sure will listen to this and be like, what are you talking about, Max? But I think a lot of vendors have done an incredible job over the years on being selective with their clients, helping them learn best practices. But at the end of the day, the last couple of weeks of the campaign, it's text everyone what's the worst that can happen. And that leads to things like AT&T saying we had a 300% increase in spam complaints. So you characterized, I think, the summer as a bit of an epic case of burnout, followed by a great vacation. And what I'm wondering is what's what's next for Max? I mean, you obviously have a really positive result on the resume of having worked on many successful acquisitions and an exit from one private equity firm to another that's very prominent, that's got to put you on the radar of other employers and perhaps as a consultant. After you have relaxed the amount that you need to relax, you're a young man yet, what's next? Um, I don't know what's next. I'm keeping a really open mind about it. Um, you know, I, I have that privilege to be able to take six months off and say, what, what, what do I want to do next? Um, I, I do really have this like existential crisis, whatever you want to call it. Last time you, you and I spoke, I think I said that my biggest fear for 2024 was all of our tech being built around a pandemic world and us not having to do that anymore. Nowadays, I think my biggest fear is like going into 2022 and 2024, it's people not taking things like 10 DLC for SMS and the Traced Act for voice, which is a similar set of legislation for voice calls seriously, and suddenly having their phones programs not, not work. That's really fearful for me. But no, I mean, for right now, I'm just chilling, hanging out, and, and talking about SMS. That seems to indicate to me that you wouldn't mind helping steer people in the right direction. I assume also other political tech, nonprofit tech 
people might benefit from your now experienced counsel in the M&A world or related matters? Yeah, maybe. I, I mean, I can say that I haven't taken money from anyone since I left every action. I don't plan to. I I really enjoy my my kind of um, my, my advisory stance of being able to grab breakfast or, you know, grab lunch with you and, and talk about these types of things. But yeah, I mean, I think that there's an opportunity to do a lot more. And I'm, you know, spent a decade in this space and I'm not sure that that my next place is going to be in this space. I hope that it will be leaving the space in a better place than, than I found it. I mean, sometimes people who've seen as much as you have of the life cycle of companies coming in sometimes very early with very small teams, either as an employee or an advisor, and then going all the way up to this recent multi-billion dollar acquisition, you get a hankering to start your own thing. Do you ever have that? Not, not really. I think I'm a, I'm a much better operator than I am founder. I feel exactly the reverse of that myself. Really? Yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't want to be an operator. Yeah. I'd rather be a founder. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's just a different skill set. I really enjoyed founding a couple of things along the lines, but what I've really enjoyed the most are growing teams to the place where they don't need me anymore. So I really enjoyed scaling hustle. I really enjoyed scaling every action. I don't know what comes next. Um, luckily, I'm privileged enough to, you know, not have to worry about that for the moment. But yeah, I, I think that right now, you know, we have this like looming deadline around SMS and phones and uh, anyone who wants to talk about it, you know, yourself included. I, I, I'm happy to talk about it from this unique perspective of having been there when, when a bunch of stuff was being built. Well, Max. Always an honor. That was Max Cayman Cross. Hugs to all who cared for him. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.